Heavier Than Air Flight is just over 100 years old, but has been crucial to the progress of mankind in the 20th century and beyond, both in peacetime and in war. We're going to be looking at two key events from the golden age of aviation. These risky endeavours captured the imagination of the public throughout the globe and laid the groundwork for today's fast, safe and affordable to the average person international air travel. I think it was 16 years yeah uh, i think it was 1903 was the Wright brothers yeah so that would have been about 16 years previous to the 1919 air race which which is interesting to think about because 16 years isn't isn't really that that much time well if you think about how much aviation has changed in the last 16 years not really a lot i mean the planes look the same and they fly the same routes and you know there hasn't been a huge change but like certainly there was there was some really rapid development at the start once people realised how useful planes were going to be. Yeah, uh, Bill, Billy Hughes was one of the main proponents behind it in Australia and he was the Prime Minister at the time and supposedly from his time at the Paris pre- Peace Conference after the First World War had, from his experience, flying back and forth between London and, and France, uh, he became convinced that this really... this modern air flight or air travel would be a game changer for Australia and you would be able to link up places like Melbourne, Adelaide and Sydney with with the outposts like Perth and and Darwin. So I I think up up until then some of the charting and mapping was done via airplane but it seems it seems that it was Billy Hughes's experience around the Paris Peace Conference seeing the convenience and function of air travel between neighboring cities in Europe that convinced them to the usefulness of it and I suppose also on the uh, from the military point of view one of the objectives behind it was to highlight defense routes or to at least open up defense routes to Australia or between Australia and their allies which I suppose during the first world war uh, wouldn't have necessarily had had too much of a bearing on it but when, when you come to see the second world war where Australia was really on the precipice of being invaded by Japan and had had attacks on outlying islands and I think I think Darwin itself actually which was the final destination in Australia for this 1919 flight I think Darwin had been bombed by the Japanese air force so it's I think it's kind of interesting to um consider at this stage in 1919 post uh, first world war that Australia was you know had on its mind how do we uh how do we highlight the easiest routes to like say resupply us or to uh reinforce us in the case of a military emergency or an invasion so it was important in australia's mind i suppose to one a highlight that uh it's not as far as it seems and it can be done within a month within 720 consecutive hours in a plane and if that's done to publicity then obviously it, it may encourage the British uh, or whoever it may be that are allied to Australia or support Australia encourage them to consider it as a not so far away place and, and, and to some extent that worked right Australia seems to function now as you know any other country it's not we don't think of it as the moon uh, yeah so part of part of what Billy Hughes wanted to do at the Paris Peace Conference and after that was to ensure that the rest of the world recognized Australia this new fledgling commonwealth 
colony or country had contributed. Mm-hmm. So part part of organising this 1919 London to Melbourne air race was to kind of keep keep the momentum up from goodwill that would have been throughout the Western world towards the Australians for their commitment and for their sacrifice in the First World War. Uh, so this, I suppose, this was um, intended to kind of f- to further that as well, okay. and to f- foster better links with the rest of the kind of the the modern Western world who they had supported and fought for in the First World War. Yeah, you're you're talking about post First World War, so you're going to have lots of improvements in technology and lots of mm-hmm. well, the, the plane technology definitely benefited from World War One. Like the Vickers Vimy was a World War One bomber. Uh, have you seen a picture of it? Yeah, it's just like photos of it? huge, ridiculous biplane. It does. It does look a bit ridiculous, even compared to like other photos of, of biplanes that I've seen. There's something a bit, I don't know, something a bit silly about the Vimy, isn't there? Yeah, and like the engine is mounted like just in between the two uh, wings. Yeah, it, something a bit frumpy looking. About it. <laughs> but yeah, no, l- looking at the photos of the Vimy. It really shows you how exposed they were in the cockpit. Yeah, it looks a lot more like a Wright Brothers plane than it does like a modern plane. It does, doesn't it? it, it even more so than some of the um, some of say the the fighters that the British and the Germans would have used in the First World War. So, like you know, like the Sop with Camel. Yeah, yeah, that looks much more modern, even though it, it's you know not too different. Yeah. I suppose. In... Well, like they'd be contemporaneous. I'm I'm assuming yeah. like they would. Yeah, be... yeah. Yeah, so so like just looking at the top of the camel, it, it looks like you know it could be like a modern air. Or it could be an aircraft you could, you, you'd see it at, at a field at an airfield today that someone has for like Sunday flights and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But the Vickers Vimy certainly just looks like it's from a different era entirely. Mm-hmm. So I I think one of the problems they had, um, particularly the Australian crew, given that they may not have been exposed to conditions like they encountered in northwestern or northern Europe like they would have in Australia. One of the issues was coming through like ice storms and like uh, cold icy weather. The propellers would like fling pieces of ice back at them in the <laughs> cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> so what they did was they had like a, a, a makeshift, a line of mesh material in front of them. <laughs> but, it, but it would only stop chunks of ice that were bigger than like a, a 10 centimeter diameter. <laughs> So, a lot of smalls. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I, I think I think particularly in in the in the bad conditions, like leaving leaving England and like coming through France and leaving France, a lot of the time they they basically be ducking in between, looking up to find <laughs> find their uh, way oh, visually, but because obviously the, the, their entire way their entire way relied on visual flight rules, whereas like well they had a, a uh, compass and that's about it. So, so obviously they would they would have crossed seas at various points, but mm-hmm. they would have been short enough um, hops. And the the biggest stretch of open sea they had to encounter was between East Timor and the Northern Territory of Australia, or Darwin, mm. which was their final destination. And to kind of give them a bit of a hand in this, Billy Hughes had organised the HMAS Sydney to sit midway between East Timor and Australia. Ah. Oh with their bows arranged or uh, aligned in the direction that the planes were supposed to travel in. Oh, that's good. Would have, I suppose, given them a lot of reassurance um, and uh, backup in terms of, like, 
they would have known to look out for that midway between East Timor and Australia. So had they not reached it within a certain uh, amount of time, they would have been well aware that they were well off course. So 16 years after the first powered heavier-than-air flight with the Wright brothers in North Carolina, we've got this challenge to fly from London to Darwin, which is you know pretty much as far as you can go on the globe. The government of Australia put up a prize of £10,000. Now, at the time, the Australian pound would have been pegged to the British pound, and accounting for inflation, that's about... 500,000 in 2019 pounds. So quite a considerable amount of money. Yes, certainly. Uh, I I know from reading some of the memoirs of the pilots that the fact that the prize was significant definitely played a factor in attracting attracting the airmen airmen, sorry, to the to the race. I suppose particularly particularly in the conditions of like a post post Great War Europe. And Australia, I guess, because any of the countries that would have been heavily involved in the war, I'm sure, were still feeling the effects of like austerity and whatever would have come in after the First World War. So the story goes that Billy Hughes, after the war in 1918, on Christmas Day, he was talking to these uh, Australian airmen in Kent. And they said that what they'd love to do is, now that the war is over, fly their plane, as in the planes that they'd been flying for the RAF, fly that back to Australia. And this was kind of an idea that he took back with him and formed into this competition, which was uh, at the time criticised. One of the papers described it as circus flight, a poorly disguised attempt at self-advertisement at the expense of the Australian public. Which which there may be a, a a small bit of truth to, possibly. In that, I think there was recognised by even Billy Hughes and certainly by the entrants and competitors that there was, I suppose, a reasonable enough factor of risk involved in this. Um, and I, I suppose when you look through how many took part, um, what kind of casualties and fatalities were involved throughout the competitors, it certainly was a risky enough endeavour. And I think part part of the publicity they hoped to garner around it was due to the fact that it was a dangerous expedition and that 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 there's there's certain like it it wasn't uh, a well-trodden path what they were trying to do no one had done it before and i I suppose that was yeah that was a a part a part of the attraction and charm of the event and what like what what made it such a big deal at the time yeah yeah so talking about you know going where no one has gone before the raf had done surveys which which essentially means map making for what would compose the route as far as india because there was a lot of traffic between india and the uk at the time that was another one of the colonies but after that it became a much more kind of unknown territory since they hadn't gotten that far yet uh, and so they arranged for the indian navy to go out and distribute supplies along the rest of the route for the various uh, planes to pick up as they passed. But unfortunately, the ship exploded and sank with... Oh, Lord. Yeah, with General Borden and Ross Smith aboard. Is Ross Smith one of the pilots? Ross Smith was was the pilot of the Vickers Vimy, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Ross um, McPherson so, uh, Smith. So he was on board. Suspicious. Hmm. I think an interesting fact about ross smith's brother keith 
he was denied entry into the Royal Australian Air Force. Sorry, yeah, the Australian Flying Corps. Uh, that, that that's certainly what it was called in the first world oh, war. Oh, anyway. sorry, yeah, it, it, the Royal Australian Air Force formed in 1921. Smith himself, the pilot, w- yeah, was a member of yeah the Australian Flying Corps, mm-hmm. whereas his brother was denied entry into the Australian Flying Corps, and travelled to the UK, travelled to England during the First World War, and enlisted <laughs> with the RAF. He, I think he was blocked on medical grounds in Australia. And because of this, decided to try his luck with the RAF. So it was something like varicose veins that he was denied entry on. So he had surgery in Australia and then jumped on a boat straight away afterwards, travelled to England, signed up with the RAF. They were happy enough to take him and he became an instructor with them. I don't think he ever saw any actual combat during the First World War. So Billy Hughes in May of 1919 announced that they were going to hold the Great Air Race. The rules were the crew had to be Australian, the plane had to be from the British Empire and you had 30 days to fly from London to Darwin. You had to take off at Hounslow Heath, uh, call in at Alexandria in Singapore uh, and then reach the final destination which was Darwin. Ultimately there were six or seven uh, contestants depending on how you look at it um yeah because one french team decided to compete even though they weren't eligible for the prize although he's not eligible for the ten thousand pounds being in a sense french etienne poulet also decided to attempt to fly from france to australia at the same time so there were six competing teams and also a tag along who uh, started from france who were yeah P- poulet uh, Poulet yeah. was his name. I'm trying. Etienne. Etienne Poulet. Uh, interesting that they say in a sense French. Isn't he being like oh, every sense French. <laughs> <laughs> no. So uh, it, it might be worth mentioning as well that prior to the Great Air Race, Vickers, I think in a Vimy, yeah, Vickers had supplied an aircraft for the first flight between Ireland and Newfoundland. So they they had been testing and been fitting out planes for that flight, and not long before. The Great Air Race was arranged and started. So yeah, Vickers may have had a head start on this, given that they were preparing for that um, cross-Atlantic journey, which may ha- may you may say bear out because I suppose they are the only team that really succeed in the competition itself. So w- with the with the Vickers Vimy crew, the the two Smiths, the the guys who ended up winning the overall race, they actually had two dedicated mechanics as part of the crew as well. Mm-hmm. Which was probably a good idea as uh, other teams ended up having to stop because of various mechanical problems. The names of the mechanics were Sergeant Wally Shears and Jim Bennett. They, one of the factors involved in, in this would have been as, as well, although, so the two stopping points were, or the reporting points for the race um, were Alexandria and Singapore. Mm-hmm whereby there would be officials from the organisers of the race to check the planes and to check the crew as well to make sure that it was all being done within the the rules of the race. But but apart from that, they were able to like plot their own journey and make their own rendezvous and all that. But obviously, it's a factor of the this route not being established and like the the idea behind this race was like establishing some kind of like overland and sea air route to australia 
if something broke in the aircraft, they would have either had to fix it themselves or potentially wait for a part to be shipped to them in whatever location they'd ended up at. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, I'm sure you can imagine in, in 1919 that this this is something that really could have destroyed their chances to finish the race. There was an anecdote where mid-flight they found a leak in their fuel pump and to fix or to attempt to fix the leak in the fuel pump, they, the whole crew started chewing Wrigley chewing gum, which had been given to them... I'm not sure exactly was it sponsored, but I think it was given to the crew to kind of stave off some of the monotonous travel and all that, or whatever the chewing gum was meant to do. Those were the two guys as well. So yeah, Captain George Campbell Matthews of the Australian Flying Corps was a pilot, and then Sergeant Sergeant Thomas D.K., the mechanic. They were <laughs> captured and imprisoned as suspected Bolsheviks in Yugoslavia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think uh, they actually made a, an escape under gunfire to get away from wherever they were being imprisoned. Mm. Taking advantage of the temporary absence of the guard, we grabbed our papers and bolted for the airplane and got away easily. <laughs> Doesn't say a lot <laughs> so, for yeah, the communists. Whatever about getting away and like escaping from their captors, imagine having to mm. like, get to your plane, start the engine and then just take off. <laughs> Okay, I mean, actually I want to read a segment here because it's so good. So they, after they escape from Yugoslavia, they say, After spending three weeks in Belgrade in the deepest despair, a French aviator arrived and he reluctantly induced, sorry, and he was reluctantly induced to let us have sufficient petrol to take us to Bucharest. In the vicinity of Adrianople, temporary trouble with the petrol pump caused a forced landing in what from the air appeared to be a nice grass field. But as soon as the machine touched the ground, it sank to the axles in a quagmire. Sergeant K located and repaired the fault, but we could only get away by K hanging onto the tail and making a flying jump for the fuselage at takeoff. We spent three... Wow. <laughs> We spent three days in Constantinople, but when giving the engine a final running trial, a leak was found. With the aid of chewing gum, powdered asbestos and copper wire, we repaired the leak and set off to Baghdad with the engine in a rotten condition. <laughs> Wait, so so the, the chewing gum thing came from the Sopwith Wallaby? The yeah, two guys, yeah. Math- Matthews and Kay. Oh, why? Okay. <laughs> powdered asbestos and chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's a real kind of Heston Blumenthal dessert, isn't it? Out of the six official competitors um, in the 1919 air race, um, as we as we mentioned before, two of them reached Australia. One of them within the 30 days or seven, sorry, 720 consecutive hours. The the Smith brothers in the Vickers Vimy. And then the only other crew to reach Australia at all was uh, the the guys in the Air Corps DH9. So sorry, Ray Perer in the Air Co- Air Corps DH9, um, who took 206 days in a single engine. So obviously commendable mm-hmm. on its own, um, given that they only had two crew to- total and they did it in a single engine airplane. But out of the rest of the competitors, two of the crews were killed completely. So. In terms of in terms of the other crews, Bali, London, Crete, and Corfu were as far as they made it. So uh, obviously, B- Bali is uh, a pretty good attempt. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're pretty close to Australia there. Crete. It's interesting that two of them ended up in Crete and Corfu because well, Crete and Corfu are, are fairly close by, aren't they? Uh, fairly near. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, Corfu is like closer to Italy. <laughs> oh, I'm, re- I'm just reading the spiel from um, Perer and Macintosh. On the way to Rome, their engine caught fire at a height of 3,000 feet, and it was only by turning off the petrol and side slipping down that they managed to escape a terrible death. The, they were forced to make a landing in the Syrian desert and spent the night under their machine. In the morning, they saw a group of Arabs advancing upon them, but succeeded in holding them off with revolver shots and managed to get away. <laughs> <laughs> this was Perra, was it? Yeah, yeah. Perra Macintosh in the... Um, Erco DH9. Erco DH9, yeah. Sponsored yes. by a, a distillery in Scotland. Pairer, um yeah, I think the guy, was it Pete Dawson? Was uh, the, yes, was that's the right. Mm-hmm. Who um, bought the plane for them and financed a lot of the journey as well. So, yeah, I don't know if we, if we have mentioned it already, but Ray Perer, who ended up coming in second, was given a consolation prize for finishing the race, finishing the, the journey from London to Melbourne, albeit outside of the, the time frame. He actually took part in the 1934 air race, the mm. McRobertson Trophy air race. Yeah. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think he ended up being very successful in that. I think he ended up finishing his... I think he finished his journey fairly early on in that one. It wasn't quite the epic 260-day journey of the first one. Mm. Well, I, sh- I should... Uh point out that when they did arrive in Melbourne they were uh, personally welcomed by Billy Hughes and they gave him a bottle of whiskey which they would have brought from the PD distillery uh, who sponsored them in the first place and which they'd managed to bring oh. all the way from England and then each of the two guys Perer and Macintosh got 500 pounds which is which oh. is pretty good considering the real prize was 10,000 pounds yeah so I, I wonder did I'm not sure was there um, organised a consolation prize prior to the race starting, or did they just take that thousand out of the overall ten thousand? Yeah, as a as a token of appreciation of their plucky flight, they were presented with a cheque for five hundred pounds each. So they actually crashed in Sydney and wrote off the plane, and then they borrowed another plane to keep going to Melbourne. (laughs) I I think like their 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 race had like finished or their participation and finish once they reached Darwin anyway like I think any journey beyond that um, oh. even for the Smith guys was just like uh, what would you call it like a publicity not a victory, victory yeah exactly yeah. A publicity um, trip yeah yeah because I was wondering why they were allowed to change plane but I, pre- I presume they wouldn't have been uh, no I I think if, if that if that happened prior to Darwin they would have had to have completed it in their original plane or else mm. like drop out of the race Could, but yeah w- w- once they reached Darwin I think it was all good. So with the Vickers Vimy as well, I don't know. Did you see? Or uh, uh, have you noticed the registration on that plane? Uh, the or did Vickers you read anything Vimy, about it? I didn't. I didn't look at that. G Eeks, is it? So G dash E A O U. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, the crew referred to as, or the crew said, stood for God help all of us. <laughs> That's good. Which is pretty good, yeah. I, I think at the end of the race as well, um, the King George the Fifth, I think it was. Would that be right? The UK monarch at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, the the two the two or the pilot and the navigator, the two brothers uh, of the Vickers Vimy, Ross McPherson Smith and Keith McPherson Smith, were knighted straight away or uh, almost immediately by King George, whereas the two mechanics weren't. Oh, harsh. 
and the, the, the two mechanics never um, were never knighted for it and I believe Ross Smith himself had come out and said like there is no way that the whole, the entire crew and the plane would have made made the entire journey were it not for the the mechanics. Well, but so I they think did, there was a bit of consternation about that at the time, they, or over that at the time. They did, in fairness to them, all share the prize money. You had Roger Douglas, sorry, Lieutenant Roger Douglas and Lieutenant uh, JSL Ross, who again took off from Einzel Heath in an Alliance P2 Seabird uh, named Endeavour. So this was the crew that didn't actually make it out of England. They crashed in an orchard in Surbiton. Ross was killed outright, and Douglas was killed later from injuries sustained in the crash. But it seems that, or the impression from reports at the time seems to be that the plane was too heavily laden with equipment. And I, th- I think the Alliance was possibly the only aircraft that took part in the race that actually had a radio on board. And I, I should... Well, the fact of having a radio will be more interesting later, but uh, I should mention that the crash, the crash of the Endeavour, happened on the 13th of November, and the race didn't have, like, a, a specific starting time, so several planes actually left after that time, 21st of November, 4th of December, uh, 8th of January, and so these guys all set out just after the previous competitor had set out, crashed and been killed. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, and in fact, the next two teams to take off, there was a team in a Blackburn Kangaroo of Lieutenants Rendell and Williams, who ended up crashing in Crete. There was a, a Martinside A1, piloted by uh, Captain Howell, which had a forced landing in the sea near Corfu in December. Uh, I, I think that Blackburn kangaroo you mentioned, it crashed in Crete. Yes, that's right. It, it, it was the plane that supposedly ended up against the fence of a mental hospital. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it's mentioned in all the reports of the story. Um, so it, it's one of the two, one of the out of the four that didn't complete the journey, the Blackburn Kangaroo, and the Sopwith Wallaby were the two planes to not actually sustain any fatalities or or uh, major injuries. Mm. So yeah, the Blackburn Kangaroo crashed in Crete, sliding up uh, against the fence of a mental hospital, and the Sopwith Wallaby was made it as far as Bali crash landing on Grokak. The story of Captain Ross Smith's run home from Singapore to Darwin is still fresh. The journey from Rangoon, Burma, to Singapore was earlier accounted one of the most formidable laps, if not the most formidable lap of the journey, since it covered 1,000 miles across jungle country, where a forced landing would have been, it is stated, even more disastrous than a forced landing into the sea. However, all went well. The Australian team arrived at Singapore on the 4th of December and commenced the last long lap across the islands and the ocean to Australia. The secret provision that it transpired was made at the expense of the Vickers Vimy Company for the construction of special aerodromes on the Sumbawa, Flores and Timor Islands shows that the gallant captain was as seized of the necessity for the fullest caution as was Mr Hughes, the Prime Minister himself, when on the 18th of November he cabled to Captain Smith, Do your best, but do nothing foolhardy. If you cannot make Australia within 30 days, never mind. Good luck. That's nice. That's a sound thing to yeah. say. Yeah, so Vickers themselves, the manufacturer of the Vimy um, airplane, 
had had paid for paid for the construction of these special aerodromes in well Sumbawa is like indonesia isn't it yeah that sounds right uh well yeah these special aerodromes constructed um in indonesia and east timor and as we mentioned the frenchman pule was allowed use these aerodromes by uh, captain ross smith which was obviously a nice touch if you include pule out of the seven uh, attempts at completing the race only two of them made, made it to australia one of them made it within the time the the Vickers Vimy crew with the two Smith brothers made it um, in 28 days so just under the 30 day limit whereas it was Ray Perrer in the single engine aircraft doing it in 206 days in the Aircore DH9 but then out of out of everyone else you had one that barely made it out of London didn't really make it out of London as we said crashed in an orchard on the outskirts of London two that ended up crashing near Greece one into the sea and one crash landing on Crete and then outside of that, you have Bali. It was at Sopwith Wallaby. So, so the guys that had been captured as suspected Bolsheviks in Yugoslavia made it, made it the farthest out of the rest. Now, we did mention that Pule, Pule came down in, was it Burma? In Mule. Yeah, so I, I suppose, yeah, Pule can't really be considered a, a proper competitor in the race. But it's, I suppose it's still significant given that, well, three of them didn't make it out of Europe, really, at, at all. So it's quite the achievement to get all the way to Australia. Obviously, um, the glory and the honour went to the Smith brothers, Captain Ross McPherson Smith and his brother, Lieutenant Keith McPherson Smith. Once they they had arrived uh, in Darwin to to great fanfare, and once they had landed, there was arranged a I suppose like a goodwill and type of victory lap tour of Australia, where they were to fly to Melbourne. Melbourne being the capital at the time to meet the public and i think what they had organized was a, a a meet and greet type thing at the race course in melbourne where they hold the melbourne cup and i think local dignitaries had arranged for the proceeds from what the public paid as entrance fees to the event was to go towards the pilots and crew obviously so yeah you, you had the two smith brothers knighted immediately afterwards and as we mentioned the the mechanics seem to have been omitted from those honors but they all would have shared um as we said in the the overall prize which was pretty significant at the time the two australian politicians who were like prominent in this were billy hughes the prime minister and senator george pierce who was the minister for defense so like from the get-go they're seemed to be a significant like military mm. strategic push to the whole um and of course all the all the pilots were military uh, had all been either in the yeah. rf or the uh, 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 australian air corps i think every single pilot or co-pilot or navigator who was involved in the race outside of um, poulet the frenchman had been in either the australian flying corps or the royal air and force poulet himself had just been in the french air corps was it a case of these guys had had tasted the thrill of dogfighting and, and all that in the First World War? Because it it had only just ended. Yeah, it was so really were they just, like the, it was November 1918 that it ended and these guys set out in November of 1919. So were they just looking to keep that thrill alive? <laughs> well, I mean, that was the thing that the pilots had mentioned to uh, Billy Hughes in December of 1918 that they'd love to be able to fly back home uh maybe that's what some of them were doing i i, I know ross mcpherson smith had made it as far as at least constantinople on his way back to australia from 
Europe after the war mm-hmm. when he had heard of the race being organized and, and of particularly the 10,000 Australian pound prize and at that point made his way back to England. The, the, the Vickers Vimy itself had been on display, I think, pretty close to one of the terminals of the Adelaide Airport oh, for years and years. I was looking at a photo the of last it there, uh, a, a colour photo that was taken like recently. Yes, yeah. of the original one. Of Yeah, so it was in Adelaide, yeah, specially built enclosure in Adelaide Airport. And maybe it's still there? So I I think it was like in a reasonably prominent place where if you're whereby if you're going to the airport um you would have come across it but they had it moved into a hangar okay um where it's not uh, well within the last couple of years it it hasn't been on like public display we'll obviously include uh, photos of the aircraft and some of the other aircraft on our website and on social media and all that but it's it's well worth going and taking a look at what the Vickers Vimy looked like because it is it is certainly something out of like a different era entirely I, I just thought it was funny that it was green because i looked at a lot of photos of it before but it was always in black and white because they were all photos and from so, the time so if you were lo- if you were looking at photos of it before was it like a lighter color did you notice that was it like a, a kind of a white gray color um i'll have a look now i don't know like i when i looked at it i thought oh yeah that that could have been green in black and white but yeah. maybe it was just repainted apparently what had happened was when the smith brothers have made their flight their initial flight from london towards france mm-hmm. the original color or the original finish on the plane was like a like a light color so like a a creamy gray or something okay. like that and the glare was so bad off the paint that once they the next time they landed they requested the plane be painted a different color <laughs> and so the plane was painted in like an olive green like a military olive green uh. so if you look at like contemporary pictures or sorry not contemporary pictures if you look at photos of that plane today yeah. it's it's in that olive green yeah whereas i i, I think the color if you're looking at a photo of it now i think the color um was more like the color of the propellers but um yeah the, the front of the aircraft it, it looks it looks funny doesn't it it's almost like like the, the front of that fuselage is well, it reminds me of like an old tractor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. And like, are their heads sticking out over the top of this, or is the pilot looking yes. through that windshield? No, that their heads would have been sticking out over the top of it. I think they may have had some vision through that. Oh. I suppose, g- given how tall the aircraft would have been and the angle it would have s- sat at, yeah. particularly on the ground, you would have had to have been allowed some kind of vision through the front of the yeah, so, the cockpit. So maybe you're like looking between your knees to see what's on the ground. The amount of space that they would have had inside that I've heard described as if you were to like lay a fridge down on the floor and then sit inside of like an average fridge. <laughs> that's how much they would have had. That's how they practiced. And, and obviously like in a non-pressurized cabin, completely exposed the entire time. I know yeah. they talked about like within a couple of hours of being in the air after taking off in England, the sandwiches they had, had made for them had completely frozen <laughs> so they couldn't eat anything. <laughs> <laughs> hate that which is hey, airplane good, yeah. food am I right <laughs> thanks for listening to part one of our look at the great air races of the golden age of aviation we hope you'll join us next week for part two this has been hard hat history <laughs>